This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries, official sponsor of Faction 46 and Nice Motorsports Truck Series teams. Forney offers versatile welding and plasma cutting machines, along with a full line of metalworking accessories for beginners, do-it-yourselfers, and professionals. Forney has everything you need for your next metalworking project. Shop for these top-of-the-line products at ForneyIND.com, that's F-O-R-N-E-Y-I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. I think the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was a chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Basically, I didn't know a box in from an opening wrench when I started. Joe Gadsway asked Benny, he said, do you feel this car safe enough for you to drive it? And he said, yeah. So he went back on the racetrack. I was never satisfied that we were doing well enough, or I personally was doing well enough. 
I'm giving you an answer after I go sit down and talk to Junior Johnson, the man who I work for. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, everyone. I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Sing Vault Podcast. <laughs> what you is thought, that? You thought I'd <laughs> forgotten that, didn't you? <laughs> I hoped you'd forgotten it. <laughs> yes, sir. I have not forgotten the FX button on my new soundboard. All the bells and whistles. Nothing but the best here on the Sing Vault Podcast. Steve, this week, before we get started, in all seriousness, first and foremost, we need to send our good friend, Eric Quinn, a ton of get well wishes. Eric Quinn, of course, you longtime listeners of the podcast, remember him as the representative of QWare, which was our presenting sponsor for a year or so. Eric had emergency surgery last Thursday after his appendix ruptured a couple of days earlier. Wait a minute. It ruptured a couple of days before he had the surgery? How did he live with that? I'm thinking that he was waiting for last week's episode of the podcast to drop before heading to the hospital. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, Rick, that's it. That's it. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) You know what, Steve? I can almost assure you that that was not the case, (laughs) but Eric is back home and he is on the mend. but Eric, man, don't do that to us again. Don't scare us like that. I got a text just out of the blue last Thursday and he said, I could really use your prayers. I'm just coming out of emergency surgery. And he told me what had happened to Matt. I could not believe it. A ruptured appendix a couple of days earlier. Eric, you're a stronger man than I am. That's for sure. (laughs) Steve, this week in our first segment, you and I did an interview that I don't think that either one of us will ever forget. We did an interview in Statesville at his old shop with Travis Carter. And Travis is one that I really wanted to talk to because a lot of fans from the 1970s and the 80s and 90s remember Travis. And Travis this week tells us about his very humble beginnings in the sport there in his hometown of Ellerby, North Carolina, where he first went to work for LG DeWitt and Benny Parsons. Right. LG DeWitt and Benny Parsons were also Ellerby residents and LG was big in trucking and other businesses. And he happened to form a team and course Benny was his driver. Travis also describes the day that Benny and John A. Utzman tag-teamed their way to Victory Lane at Bristol. He also remembers the day in which basically the entire garage tag-teamed to help (laughs) Travis and Benny repair their car and clinch the 1973 Winston Cup Championship at Rockingham. Travis then went to work for Roger Penske for a couple years before moving back south to join Junior Johnson and Associates as the co-crew chief for Kel Yarbrough. And while there, Travis and the rest of the team won the 1978 title going away. And he was in the pits for the 1979 Daytona 500. (laughs) (laughs) But finally, Travis told us about the three races that he felt just really got away. And then he wound up telling us about how he 
joined a team that was being fielded by Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds. So the country boy from Ellerbee, North Carolina was going Hollywood. That team was the Skull Bandit team sponsored by U.S. Tobacco. And it was with that team that I think Travis rose up to prominence. Then in our second segment, we're going to go back to the November 5th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene. You had a column on Travis in this issue. While Darrell Waltrip outlasted Bobby Allison, Harry Gant, and Richard Petty to win his fourth straight race during the 1981 season, Bear Grease on the racetrack was the hot topic that weekend, especially <laughs> after more than a few drivers tried to take a chunk out of the rock. <laughs> <laughs> And this issue also carried news features on a new team that NASCAR pioneer Tim Flock was in the process of forming. And Bobby Allison and Waddell Wilson's thoughts on Bobby leaving were near racing at the end of the year. So from the Travis Carter interview to the issue of the week, this is going to be a packed episode. Oh, by all means. I remember that uh, race at Rockingham pretty well. And you were right about the bear grease. I'll tell you a little story about that later on. This week, we have new Patreon support from Nate Carlisle. So, Nate, thank you, man. You're a member of the family now. You're helping us do what we do here on the podcast. That is to preserve NASCAR history, and we really, really appreciate it. So, listeners, if you can, please support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal, if you can do a monthly show of support, you can do that at patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would prefer just to do a one-time show of support, you can do that via paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. Travis, you're from Ellerbee. North Carolina originally. Is that correct? That is correct. All right. Well, how did you wind up going to work for LG DeWitt? The truth is that at the time, his crew chief was a guy named John Hill. I dated John's stepdaughter. So I knew John pretty good. Of course, living in a community like Ellaby, you knew people anyway. And we had kind of family association through the years with Mr. DeWitt. Not directly, but we knew him. And a couple of my brothers during their off-season, you know, we were farmers, basically. And they would drive trucks during the winter for Mr. DeWitt. So it was kind of, we kind of, it was just kind of a hometown, close-knit group. And, and John, one day, I was going to school. I decided to go to school at uh, Old Southern Pines, that community college. I went to, I went, actually went to Banner Elk to Lee's McCray for 10 days. <laughs> I said, I am not, I don't like these mountains. I'm not staying up here. And I got on a bus, went back to Rockingham. So I was going to school some, and then John said, well, why don't you come up here and help us a little bit? And I always tell this story, and it's true. I, I worked on a farm, so you work on equipment occasionally. But basically, I didn't know a box in from an opening wrench when I started. Wow. So John, I went in there and worked with John. You know, you're working with two or three people, and I just kind of, Started learning and got, and got accustomed to doing that. And I said, gee, you know, I think I'd rather do this than something else. So I went to school for about a year, a little over a year, and I quit. And by then, things had started to change in the organization or the team. And uh, it's kind of, at one point, it was just Benny Parsons and myself working. No kid. Yeah, we ran a few races. And then, of course, the team started to grow back a little bit after that. Well, speaking of Benny, he was very early in his career at that stage. So what was your impression of Benny at that time? Well, being a little 
kid that I was, 20 years old or whatever, I thought, you know, he was kind of like a father figure yeah. to me. And we had a close ra- close relationship. I was just thinking last night, like at Rockingham and places, he would come by to pick me up on the way to work because I lived between where he lived in Ellerby and the track. And about about seven or eight miles from the tracks where I was raced. And he'd come and my mother would pick, fix breakfast and we'd sit and eat breakfast before we go to the racetrack together. So, you know, it's kind of like... But of course he wasn't at the time you're thinking this guy's an old man and he's probably 10 years older than I was is all he really was very little age difference what kind of personality did he he had a great you know Benny had a great personality you guys know him you know he was kind of beloved by the fans just for his 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 sense of humor and and all that and and it turned out Benny Parsons was a good race car driver the problem with somebody like myself being young you don't know anything and you don't when you go to the racetrack, if you're not running good, you don't understand. It's not that you blame the driver, but you say, gee, you know, we just, we just not real good and we need to be better. And you don't really have an appreciation or know how good a guy you're associated with sometimes. But later on, as he got better equipment under him and better personnel around him, you know, he proved a worthwhile driver, I think. Tell me about Mr. DeWitt. With everything that he had going on, I think he was involved in Rockingham at that time. He had the trucking company, had the race uh, team. Got involved in Atlanta also. Yeah, got yeah. involved in Atlanta. How involved was he with the race team day to day? Pretty direct. He'd, was come, he? he'd come driving that old Mercury around and might blow the horn or something, and you'd walk out, and, or he might get out and come inside. You, you just never knew. He, I mean, he just might show up. And uh, <laughs> he was, he was, Mr. DeWitt was a, a hard-driven, self-made man that I had a great admiration and respect for. I remember he was traveling to the speedway from near where I lived. There was a dirt road, and it was about three or four miles stretch of dirt road. And if you happened to be on that dirt road, and Mr. DeWitt was on the way to or from that racetrack, <laughs> I mean, when he came around with those curves, dirt spraying, <laughs> he's running about 70 miles an hour because he's always in a hurry. Yeah, he had so yeah. much to do. He just yeah. stayed in a hurry all the time. But he was quite a remarkable man. In 1973 at Bristol, Benny starts the car, but then turns it over to John Utzman. What do you remember about that? Well, it's a good thing I was raised on a farm, spent all my time outside in the heat because <laughs> it was hot. I remember we had to race at Daytona. I think, I believe that race might have been on Thursday. I mean, you got like three or four days between races. But I remember John, and somehow John, Benny was, became friends with John, John A. And, and I, of course, he's a very likable guy. And uh, we kind of, Benny's kind of suspected he wouldn't be able to run that whole race. His, he, his neck was kind of weak or had issues with his neck muscles and stuff. And that, that particular type of race was really hard on him. So... We made arrangements. John had practiced a little bit, and it just turned out it was just like all you had to do is run 500 laps to win because, you know, Cale had trouble and Bobby Allison had trouble and everybody had trouble, and it was just a matter of surviving, and we were able to do that. And it was, and people look back on the year, and it's sad to say that some people still say, well, he won the championship and didn't win a race, but just, just confirm that. How early on in the race did John take over? It was probably beyond halfway. I, I, I don't remember particularly about that. I do remember it was he was so far ahead that John came on the radio, and, and he obviously, if the car was going to finish, it was going to win. And John felt it was appropriate for Benny to get back in the car, to be in the car at the end of the race. 
to get the checkered flag. Now, did Benny get back in? He did. Okay. Yes, All yes, right. yes. Okay. All right. So I think that was in July. It was, at, yeah, At yeah. Bristol. At what point did— Like July the 7th or 8th. Yeah, uh, yeah. At, at what point did you feel like the championship was, was a possibility? Oh, you didn't. We didn't think about that till late in the fall. Did you not? Why not? Well, you just—you couldn't beat those guys, Rick. I mean, right. you, okay. you, you know, you're a fourth— yeah. Occasionally, third, fourth, yeah. fifth, sixth place finisher. You had the the K and K car, Junior's car, the Wood Brothers when they were in the race. Right. Bud Moore was pretty competitive at times. And who am I missing, Steve? Uh, I think I said about those were the, those the Petties, the, yeah. of course. The Petties, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm sorry, Richard. But, uh, <laughs> Richard, who? <laughs> those were the guys that uh, you know that you knew you had to they you, they had to take advantage of their misfortune, or you just weren't going to outrun them. Right. We just d- didn't. Tell me about rocking them. What do you remember about the crash itself that Benny got into? Anything can go wrong, will go wrong. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing that I think is unique about that, and, you know, this story has been told many times, obviously, but uh, we were extremely prepared to deal with a, a, an emergency situation. I mean, we had welding equipment, cutting equipment, people to work. I mean, we were prepared to, to make a major rebuild, which obviously we did in quite, to quite a degree. But what's unique is we didn't have the... He ripped the right side door bars out of it. And we didn't have anything to replace that with. And a guy named Bobby Musk Grove. Yes, him. Yeah, yeah. Had not made the race. Get, people get it confused with Musgrave, but it must Grove. Grove, yeah. And Ralph Moody was helping Bobby. But for some reason, it's, it's strange how your car on Sunday was still sitting there after not making a race on Saturday. It was just parked down in the sand. <laughs> So Ralph Moody goes and cranks it up and drives it up to where we're working. And he said, cut the bars out of this car. <laughs> and, and people, you know, we had, we had good fabricators, Tech Powell on the bars, Rich, Richie and uh, Les Bars and uh, Jimmy Kowalczyk and those guys that were, who, who had actually built those, the cars that we were racing. They had been petty employees, and they came and kind of went out on their own, and they, they built some cars for, for us at Mr. Twits. So they were doing that major repairs, and I was involved with getting the suspension stuff repaired or replaced. But they cut those bars out and welded them in, and Joe Gadsway asked Benny, he said, you feel this car safe enough for you to drive it? And he said, yeah. So he went back on the racetrack and finished what we had to do to get it done. And then, of course, Richard had trouble. I mean, we were, hadn't been in the garage long here. He comes in with an engine failure, and I think they were going to make an attempt to change the engine, and, and when they saw us doing the work we were doing, I think Maurice just threw his hands up and said this, because it was a big old deal to change those big old Hemi engines back in those days. And uh, so, and then Kale, uh, Kale, I think, finished the race, but he just was too far behind to, to, yeah. to overcome it. Yeah. What did it mean to you? I've always heard that members of other teams came in and helped pitch in and all that. As I recall, they could have did as much as they could. The only thing about it, you know, you can only have so many people involved right. with yeah. something. Yeah. I mean, when you're cutting and welding, you know, you got to concentrate and you got to give room guys room to work and all that stuff. But I think people, you know, it's human nature to pull for an underdog and people knowing that it was Mr. DeWitt's racetrack and it's his team and it's hometown and all those factors, I think, come to play with people. And But I think one important ingredient that people lose sight of over the years I certainly have not. 
I don't know what it's like in that business today. I've not been in a cup garage since 2003. But I think the atmosphere is totally different than it was in those days. People, they, there was more camaraderie. Yeah, you had competitive racing on the racetrack, but you were friendly to people. You talked to people. You didn't go around with your nose stuck up in the air like you were special, somebody special. You were just all kind of in it together. And I think that's a big difference in the here you the environment are. You're 100 percent right. Just big difference in that world in today's world. Apparently, again, I don't know because I'm not haven't been there in almost 20 years. So I, I don't see it firsthand, but I, I started to see the comings of it when yeah. I was still in it. Because yeah. some of these young guys, and you know, I don't want to be disrespectful, but some of these young drivers, you'd meet them week after week. They'd walk by, you speak to them, they never even look. They just kept going straight. And I thought, well, okay, you be what you want to be. What did it mean to you personally to win that Winston Cup? Personally. Well, just for a 23-year-old guy, that, I mean, he's just like... That's what's supposed just, to happen. Yeah, like, <laughs> this is, this is kind of special. You know, it's just... Uh, well, I, I felt good for the team. Because, you know, those guys volunteered people. Some of the guys were... One of them was Mr. DeWitt's nephew, who run uh, all of the farming operations. He had other guys that did other jobs, and they just volunteered as pit crew members. And uh, So it was special to, to those people. Very special for me to see them enjoy that. We talked to Waddell Wilson a year or so ago, and he said that Benny and LG went to Bill France before the start of the 75 season to borrow money to run on. Was that typical of those times, or was there maybe something going on that maybe the team just needed to help? I, that's possible, and I did not know that. Okay. All right. All right. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, Waddell also said that Benny blew an engine pretty early on in the 75 Daytona 500. And you won the race with one you'd pieced together from junk engines or the Waddell did for you. Do you remember anything about that? Well, he, he, it probably was one that he pieced together because he did. The, he was involved with supplying engines. And I think he was actually, again, working for Ralph Moody at the time. Ralph, Ralph had separated with John Holman, and Ralph had an engine business. And I think Waddell was working for them, best I recall. Yeah. So you had won the Daytona 500 and the championship pretty early in your career, and you were 23, 40. I was 23, I think. Yeah. When I was born in yeah. 49. So. Yeah. You were in your mid-20s. Were you able to appreciate that kind of success that early on, or did that maybe come with time? I don't know if it really registered with me. You know? yeah. I just yeah. the, the thing about me that I think people don't know is I was never satisfied that, that that we were doing well enough, or I personally was doing well enough. You know, it's it's interesting and moving beyond your question. Probably I know when I, Roger Penske and uh, actually Mark Donahue came and talked to me about moving to Pennsylvania, and then when he died, Roger people pursued it to move up there in 1976 at the end of '75 season. I, I remember telling Mr. Dewitt and, and Benny, I said, you know, I'm a pretty young, inexperienced guy, and this will give you an opportunity to get some more experienced, maybe better people on your race team. And that's actually how I felt about it. And I was really proud to be, that Roger asked me to come there. And I still say I might have been the only guy there moved from the south. <laughs> but it was a great experience for me, actually. But bottom line is it did give, you know, Jake Elder went there. I think Waddell eventually moved there and they built engines in house for a while and they improved the race team. How difficult was to leave LB? And then where was the Penske team based? Reading, Pennsylvania. Okay. I mean, I, I've lived in Elber my whole life, Richmond County. 
I mean, it was, but let, let me tell you something. When you're young, I'd only been married a year or so, and Roger, he had a whole different philosophy about how to deal with things and treat people and stuff. And, I, and, I, it, and not in a negative way to anyone else, but uh, I thought it was a great opportunity. I said, this, I can learn from this guy. And I just jumped on it and went after it. How much of a difference was there in working for Roger Pansky and L.G. DeWitt? Well, <laughs> best description. I remember this, is, this might have been the first race we went to in Riverside, California. You know, I would just fall under and work or whatever, and if you had a creeper over there, I might use it or I might not. And I remember Roger telling me I need to go change clothes because my clothes are dirty. <laughs> but that's wow. that, that's. Yeah. The, but yeah. let me tell you something. That's that man's mo. I mean, he's he he looks professional. He is professional. He runs everything he does in a professional manner and always has. And I had great respect for that. I remember him telling me two or three things that were so important. We drove. First time I ever went to New York City, we got in a Cadillac with him, he and I, and drove from Redding, Pennsylvania to New York City. And him telling me two or three things that were important. He said, uh, first of all, always look like a winner, regardless of how good you can be. Give yourself the best presentation possible. And he said the other the thing that, he, three things he told me, two I remember specifically. And he said the second was, don't ever use your money if you can use somebody else's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But for a little 24, five-year-old guy, I mean, you, you absorb these things, guys. Uh, you know, it's yeah. not like it's just a fleeting thing. You, you kind of, you, you knew, you knew he's the kind of guy that's going somewhere, you know. And Mr. DeWitt, not that he wasn't going somewhere, but he was an older guy. He had his trucking business, the, the farming business, and all that, and that's where he was going to be. Roger Penske's hadn't scratched the surface yet, and, and I knew that when I was involved with him. I think he did okay. Yeah, he ain't done too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, you worked with Bobby Allison in 76. Then you left at the end of the year. What, what Actually, happened? I, well, the, the, the quick story. Huh? We did work in 76. We had a lot of issues uh, we ran pretty good, could not win a race. And at the end of the year, Bobby was upset about the whole situation. And, and the last race at Ontario, something happened to the engine, some issue, engine issue or something. He was out of the race. He and Roger got kind of in an, an argument. Bobby got on a bicycle, rode out in the infield, told Roger he was not coming back. So Roger hired Dave Marcus to drive some, and he ran about 10 races all we ran the next year. And I stayed on with them through through 77. But in defense of the whole thing, i got to tell this story if you don't mind. Okay. Absolutely. They were building an engine in-house, so they started using this engine plate, which basically bolts on the, from the engine block and then the water pump bolts on the outside of that engine plate. So the plate sits between the water pump and the engine block. And a Ford porch from the heads into the water pump, I got a, kind of a weird shape. It's hard to describe it. So when they made that motor plates, they, the guy doing it just bored a round hole. So he had a round hole that really didn't match the shape of that port. So we go through the entire year and start out running good, and Bobby complained every week that the car would get weaker and weaker as the race went on and the water temperature kept, would creep up. And you just, we did radiator changes, we did multiple changes. And the guy that's doing the work was named John, named Woody Woodard, good guy. He had been a crew chief the year before before I came, but he was running doing the engines 
he and a guy named Carl Kiefer. No, Carl Kiefer, that's not the right name. It's something like that. He was a, an older guy, very good engine man. But anyway, at the end of the year, I think Woody was having a conversation with Leonard Wood, explaining all the troubles we'd had through the entire year with those engines. And Leonard asked him, he said, well, when you board the water passage through that motor plate, did you bore a round hole or did you match the port shape? And that was in problem the entire year. It would have had a whole different year. Yeah. But then you got to throw in the two accidents. He had a really bad accident in Rockingham and up in, like in, I think, in Brainerd, Minnesota. He had a really, really bad crash in a little modified type car or something. Right. Right, I remember that. How did you wind up with Junior? Well, I had to do something, so Roger was done. He, he wasn't going to run stock cars anymore, so I don't know. I guess Junior maybe called me or something. I don't remember how that happened. Got lucky, though. Fortunate, lucky, blessed, whatever you call it. But, I, I mean, through my whole the years I spent doing it, I mean, I, I had a lot of good things come my way and gave me a, good, a lot of good opportunities a lot of people didn't get. Right. Other people could do it as good or better than I did it, and they just didn't get the opportunities. Well, you and Tim Brewer. We're both listeners. Yeah, kind of like co crew chiefs, he called Yeah, how did that relationship we work did, out? We did well. Huh. We actually did well. Well, the results. I'm going to tell you something. I'm not a controversial guy. People yeah. always see me kind of a gloomy, <laughs> mad look, but I'm not a controversial yeah, person. Yeah, I never yeah. have been. Yeah. The championship that year wasn't even close. I think it was, I, I think you were <laughs> more than 400 points yeah. ahead at the end of the year. What made you guys so good in 78? Well, they had a good – I mean, they were in good shape the previous two years. They right. won the championship, so all we had to do was continue what they were doing. And, of course, we <laughs> you know, we built cars that, that, you know, you probably – you couldn't get through inspection today, obviously. But, uh, so you had to oh, really? Bit, you had to, <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't anything illegal, but it but just took advantage of a lot of things, and we had really good cars, and, and Kale was a heck of a race driver. I'm tell you that. I mean, if you got him – he'd always say, just get me close, and I'll do the rest, and he, he could do it. Just how tough – a race car driver was Kel Yarbrough. From just the, from my opinion, there was nobody more determined and could push himself any further than Kel could. I mean, all of them were good. Harry was good. Bobby was great. I mean, all of those guys were good. But Kel just, I mean, that little rascal, he just had a determination that was beyond belief, I think, for me. Tell us, tell us something we don't know about the 1979 Daytona 500. I don't know what you might not know, but I'll just kind of revisit it because I do remember it. I, I want to make this comment. There are probably three races that I'm the most disappointed about in my racing career. One people don't remember anything about was a 1975 Southern 500. Okay. Benny started that race. We had a really, really good car. And a car that could win the race. But he, he said, man, I am sick. He said, you got to get somebody to drive. Well, Daryl had not been driving long, so he so he had had trouble or something. So we go get Daryl to drive this car. And he's running, and I said, boy, all we got to do is run 500 miles, and we'll win this race. Lo and behold, he's flying along there, you know, outrunning everybody. Next thing you know, in the wall in the third turn. That impatient youth, he just, you know how you'd have to be really cautious sometime and, and, and wait for the right spot to let somebody in? He didn't do it and crashed that thing. Especially at Darlington. And, and, and didn't win that race, and that was really disappointing. The 85 Southern 500 was a real disappointment. When Bill won a million dollars, I mean, we had him beat. We had, to, we had one year before, we, we, we could win that race. And I think he 
anyway, it broke a valve, but I think he old revved it on a restart. But that's just here and there. Anyway, we fell out of the race, and I was really disappointed with that. Everybody was happy to see Bill win that money. It's like, Bill, we want to beat you, but we want you to win the money. <laughs> you know, that kind, that kind yeah, of feeling. That's yeah. how people felt yeah, those yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even Hal Needham said, you know, he said, I'm sorry we had trouble, but I'm glad we had trouble because I'm glad we had Bill won that money. But I was disappointed about that, and then the Daytona 579. Uh, it it kind of wet when the race started. The track was still a little bit damp. And David and Donnie and Kel, I think, all spun out about the fourth lap. Mm-hmm. So when they get done and get sorted out and get running again, at one point, Kel was the slowest car on the racetrack. People don't remember that. And we kept, it had misaligned the front end so bad. So we raised the hood and, and Brewer would, you know, those things had strut rods managing the lower A-frames and everything, to adjust the caster and, you know, the kingpin regulation and all that. Do a lot of it with the strut rod. So Brewer would pull on the strut rod. I would get where I could sight from the top to the bottom ball joint, you know, to see the distance. Because if you get a little bit of pitch in, it's what you want. Get some caster in it so it won't wander around so bad. So we kept adjusting those strut rods and messing with the toe in, and we lost three laps. And he came back and made them all up. Hmm. And then was, you know, and it's, of course, you know, the, the end of the result, the, the end, we, we thought we had him, of course, you never, you know, you never won anything until it's over, but we knew you had a good shot. And then, of course, it came down to what it did, and it was just a big disappointment. Just one thing, personally. Do you remember how Junior looked or reacted when he heard all that over the radio? Probably like he always did about everything, no emotion. I don't think he threw the stuff. I don't think he probably just turned away. And, and I don't remember seeing it because we all just had such a devastating yeah. uh, reaction to it. But uh, such a disappointment because we had worked so hard. You had a decent season in 1979. You won, I think, four races, but you did fall to fourth in the final standings. Was that just one of those racing deals or was it just – time for somebody else to win the championship that rick maybe it's just time for somebody else you know we, we it seemed like if we could find a way to stump our toe we'd we'd go out and do it and actually we did it in 1982 yeah. we, i mean we lost it i don't know the final result in, in, in 1980 i thought it was 18 points but it might have been different than that. it was close it, it came down to the, to the, the last, last race, race yeah and we and we we fumbled and, and messed that up and we, but we look back and we i see races you know where we had some issues we shouldn't have had that would have won that championship so you just you just have to don't make mistakes yeah 1980 kale decides at some point during the year that he's going to move on the next year doesn't want to run a full schedule and evidently junior wasn't too happy about that do you remember anything i remember about junior it? sitting down and talking to me about it but he didn't i mean i don't know i think he was disappointed but you know junior was a guy that he had a strong organization and I always saw Junior as a guy that – one thing that I tell people I learned from Junior Johnson, I learned how to win. I mean, he's a guy that that never thought he could be beaten or would was he was never beaten until the last lap was run. And he was a guy that would always find a way. And Junior always had an ability, in my opinion, to attract some of the better drivers. Yeah. And, he, and I just thought, well, he'll, he'll get him a good driver. He always has. When did you first hear from Hal Needham? I get a call from Humpy Wheeler. And called me at Junior's shop, matter of fact. 
and that tells me a little bit about Hal Needham and asked me if I'm interested in coming talking. And I said, yes, I would like to do that. So I sat down and told Junior that he had called me that I wanted to go talk, because I had a great respect for Junior. We got along extremely well. And I didn't want to do something behind his back. And so then that's how it developed. And I told Junior I was going to talk to him. And we went and sat down and talked to him. And there was a guy involved with him, uh, Johnny Hayes. Y'all know who Johnny Hayes was. And Johnny Hayes is in there because he was kind of got associated with Hal and Stan Barrett some kind of way. And Johnny, I'm never going to forget this. Johnny and I were friends later. And our wives are still good friends. You know, John's been dead for several years. But Ann and Linda are still good friends. But Johnny looks at me and said, well, they, they want an answer now. I looked him straight in the eye and said, well, I told you. I'm not giving you an answer now. I'm giving you an answer after I go sit down and talk to Junior Johnson, the man who I work for. So <laughs> Johnny got a taste of what Travis could be like. <laughs> but I was serious about that. Yeah. Well, what did Junior say to you when he told he you? He said, you can't. He said, it's an opportunity you need to take. Well, it was twice the money I was making, you know, first of all. And, you know, a young guy, I mean, money tracks people, guys. You know that. Oh, yeah. And it's not that. And he had a good organization. He could get good people. He wasn't going to miss me. So, and plus, then he, Jim Jr. always is always opportunity. He said, "Well, where are you going to get the engines?" <laughs> and I said, "Well, we got to work on." He said, well, "Maybe." I said, said, "Let me build the engines for you." So that's kind of how it was. It's almost like a two Junior Johnson cars yeah. actually for yeah. a while. I have always responded to stories where people literally start from basically nothing and then work their way up the ladder. Small town boy makes good. And that is certainly the case with Travis Carter. He is from Ellerby, North Carolina, which is not far from Rockingham. It's a small town where everybody knows everybody kind of like Yagenville where I live now. And he is dating the stepdaughter of John Hill, who was serving as the crew chief for the team that Benny Parsons drove for and that LG DeWitt owned. Travis went to Lee's McCray College and he stayed for all of 10 days. <laughs> <laughs> now that must have been one heck of a case of homesickness. Well, absolutely. Either that or Travis figured out Lee's McCray couldn't teach him anything. <laughs> so he went even anyway. Well, he comes rolling back down the mountain and John Hill tells him, why don't you come help us out? And I don't think that Travis had any kind of grand master plan to get into NASCAR. According to what he said, the extent of his experience was maybe working on some farm equipment here and there. Yeah. But lo and behold, there he was working on race cars. And according to what he said, he didn't know much about working on cars. And the way he talked, he sounded a little bit like me. When I use a screwdriver, I'm like, okay, all right, let's see here. Lefty Lucy, righty tighty. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't quite that bad. <laughs> well, whatever it takes to make it work, Rick, huh? no doubt about that. But I think I think Travis was just taking advantage of a situation offered to him. Here's John Hill, whom he knows, saying, Come on down, I'll give you a job. And Travis needed a job, right? So why not take it from somebody you know in a place you're very familiar with? You'll learn. July the 8th, 1973, the race is in Bristol and it is hot. And Steve, I got to tell you, I break out into a sweat just saying that sentence because I know what Tennessee summers can be like. 
somewhere about the midway point of the race, Benny gets out of the car. John A gets in it and he runs it for 170 laps, maintaining the lead before Benny gets back in it for the final 80. And according to Greg Fielden's book, 40 years of stock car racing, Richard Petty relieved Cecil Gordon that day. Dave Marcus relieved Bobby Isaac. L.D. Ottinger, Lenny Pond, J.D. McDuffie, Raymond Williams, Elmo Langley, Henley Gray, Rick Newsom, Jabe Thomas, and Frank Warren, they all took breaks and put somebody else in their cars. Just five drivers went the distance without relief help. L.D. Ottinger was running the very first race of his Winston Cup career. He was credited with second place and had relief help. And Steve, he was seven laps behind Benny Parsons at the checkered flag. Well, Rick, you know, darn good and well that racing back in those days, in the good old days, was always better than it is now, right? <laughs> you said that. I did not. <laughs> you said it. I didn't. The highest finishing driver who went the distance by himself was Ed Negree, who was listed in sixth place at the end of the race. 39 laps back. Six place, 39 laps down. 39 laps uh, down. <laughs> that was a high attrition rate. I tell you that. Now, we'll say this, that for Benny, racing at Bristol was tough because he had a fissure of some kind in his neck. He told me about it one time. He said, I just barely get to finish races here. It's so painful. So he used to come to Bristol with a relief driver in tow with him. One year was David Pearson. And we had a very long conversation about why Benny had to bring relief drivers to, to Bristol. And that was it. He had some kind of fissure, you want to call it, in his neck. And he just couldn't handle the G's that, that high bank racing at Bristol created. Well, I think it was just a couple of weeks ago that we actually talked about, he announced going into Bristol that he was bringing Buddy Baker along. So evidently that was kind of the standard for him, the normal operating procedure. So Steve, this is something that really kind of surprised me about the 1973 season with Travis Carter and Benny Parsons and LG DeWitt. Travis said that the team didn't really start concentrating on the championship until late in the season. Now that was before the Bob Latford system came into play. At that time, points were awarded to the top 50 drivers who finished a race, the top 50 drivers who finished a race, 60 cars started the May Talladega race that year. And 50 took the green flag there at Talladega in August, 125 points went to the winner of a race, which included a 25 point bonus that year for winning on down to two points for 50th place. Now this part was the kicker to the whole deal. Points were also paid for laps completed. And that differed depending on the size of the racetrack. Short tracks paid a quarter of a point per lap. One <laughs> mile tracks paid half a point. 1.3 mile tracks paid seven tenths of a point. 1.5 mile tracks paid three fourths of a point. Two mile tracks paid a full point. And 2.5 mile tracks and above paid 1.25. All right, now, Rick, did you memorize that? There'll be a quiz <laughs> later on, okay? Isn't that the most convoluted thing you've ever seen? Well, besides what we have today. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir, I said it. <laughs> okay. 
and I will never, ever take it back. So if for some reason a team had a bad day, it really did pay to make whatever adjustments or repairs that were necessary and complete as many laps as possible. Because that's the way the system was built. You could get any number of points just by staying in the race on the track and completing laps. And uh, at the end of the race, you could figure out how many points you earn. Of course, you'd need a calculator. (laughs) (laughs) Vinny took the lead in the standings after the May race at Talladega that year when he finished third. And from what I could gather, he kept that top spot for the rest of the year. Although Travis did say that they didn't start concentrating on actually winning the championship until later in the year. So I would assume that even though they were in first place from what Travis said, I think that they were probably kind of expecting Richard Petty or whoever to make a run at the championship. What happened was that Travis said it wasn't until late into the year. They decided to run for the championship because they looked at that time at the points and realized that with the lead they had and the number of points they had and the number of races left to go, they had a legitimate chance to win the championship. And that's what they concentrated on. Benny went into the season finale at Rockingham with a lead of 194.35 points. He gets into a very early crash. And the right side roll bars are gone. (laughs) I mean, they are completely gone. The team goes to work. They get help from several other teams. Ralph Moody commandeers Bobby Musgrove's car and (laughs) actually drives it to where the work is going on. And they proceed to cut the roll bars out of it to stick into Benny's car. And Steve, here's how much things have changed over the years. When they'd done all the repairs that they could, NASCAR official Joe Gasaway asked Benny if he felt safe going back out onto the racetrack. And Benny said, sure, absolutely. And he went back on the racetrack. Now, what was Benny going to say? I don't believe that happens today. Today, it is NASCAR's call and NASCAR's call alone whether or not a team gets back into competition. You're exactly right. Today, nobody would come up to Benny and say, do you feel safe in that car? Not at all. The officials of NASCAR would say whether or not he could go or not. With the championship on the line, Benny goes back on the racetrack without any roll bars, without any sheet metal, (laughs) (laughs) just a rolling chassis if it means winning the championship. Right. That was then. This is now. Yeah. I don't think Benny gets to do that today. Benny made it back onto the track 136 laps later. He managed to finish 28th in the 43-car field. He won the championship by 67.15 points over Kel Yarbrough. When it came to everybody pitching in to help out, Travis mentioned the fact that everybody loves an underdog. But also, he thought that maybe it was also because it was LG DeWitt and LG's race team at LG's racetrack. (laughs) Did LG have that kind of support in the garage? Well, some of that, but most of that support was behind Benny. Yeah. And you have to understand this, this happened at Rockingham, Benny's home track. And of course, as you mentioned, LG's track and LG was the team owner. So now you're talking about the hometown boy winning a championship. Naturally, that's not lost to everybody in the garage area. They know what's happening and go over to pitch in to help Benny win that championship. And all of that put together, that entire story 
makes the 1973 championship one of the most memorable in NASCAR's history. Travis went to work for Roger Penske in 1976 and 77. And I think that this story tells a lot about what it was like to work for Roger Penske then and now. Travis wound up getting his clothes dirty, working on the race car, and Roger told him to go change (laughs) into some clean clothes. And this is at a racetrack where you expect to get dirty if you're working on a race car. That was a far cry for most race teams at the time when team owners and drivers couldn't have cared less about how dirty you got rolling around under a car as long as you got the job done. But Roger insisted on his people getting the job done and looking presentable while they're doing it. So that's a pretty big difference in philosophy when you think about it. Well, that was Roger Penske's philosophy. And I can tell you, when you are as successful as Roger Penske is to this day, then you do things his way because he knows how to be successful. So why not do it his way? Of course. Clean clothes? Okay, sure. You got it, Roger. I'll follow you anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? Mike Helton is from that same school of thought. The year 2000, we were at Charlotte, and I had leaned up against a transporter or something, and I had gotten grease all over my jeans. And I just happened to pass Mike Helton in the garage, and he looked at me, and he kind of shook his head, and he said, Rick, I don't know how in the world you expect to drive my pace car looking like that with (laughs) dirty jeans. (laughs) So, Steve, the takeaway from that story is, if I hadn't had dirty jeans that day, I might be driving the pace car now. I'll tell you one thing. Mike Helton is from the same school as Roger Penske. And again, I repeat, why not do what they say? Both those men are successful at what they do. Success breeds success. Well, I wore clean jeans to the racetrack from there on out, and I still didn't get to drive the pace car, but once. <laughs> <laughs> Bobby Allison drove for Roger in 1976, but he went winless for the first time since he started driving the majority of races in 1966 and engines were a really big issue for that team that year. Bobby sat on the pole in the season opener at Riverside, but blew an engine. Then he blew another in the Daytona 500 and he blew four more in four of the last six races of the year, including the last two at Atlanta and Ontario. So they were blowing engines quite a bit. There is nothing more frustrating for a driver than to have such a series of blown engines. It indicates to the driver that uh, this team might not be what I want. Bobby got on his bike in the garage at Ontario. He looks at Roger Penske and said, I'm not going to be back in 1977. (laughs) So what does that say? (laughs) And here's what I think was so fascinating. The engine guy according to Travis, was a guy by the name of Woody Woodward. And Woody was talking to Leonard Wood at the end of the season about all the engine trouble that he'd been having. And Leonard basically goes, well, did you try putting a round peg in a square hole or did you match them up the way that they were supposed to be? And that was the issue. He diagnosed the issue right then and there on the spot that had been plaguing this race team all along. That speaks volumes to the brilliance that is Leonard Wood. I think it's probably something that's common to almost every competitor, but something that we have heard more than once on this show 
is that races that got away tend to stick with drivers and competitors and crew chiefs and crew members as much, if not maybe even a little bit more than the ones that they actually won. Travis mentioned three races that his teams could have won. The first was the 1975 Southern 500 when Benny was running pretty strong, but then he spun. And then he turned the car over to this young whippersnapper by the name of Daryl Waltrip. Daryl was running well and in contention when he hit the wall. So that was one that got away. The second was when he was working for Junior and Kale, and we all know what happened on the final lap of the 1979 Daytona 500 and why that was so incredibly frustrating. But then there was the 1985 Southern 500 at Darlington where Harry Gant dropped a cylinder while leading in the middle stages of the race. And of course, that was the race where Bill Elliott went on to win the Winston Million. But in order for Bill to do that, Harry Gant had to fall by the wayside. And so did Kelly Yarbrough. And Dale Earnhardt. Travis is working at Junior Shop up in Inglehalla, North Carolina. And he gets a call from Hal Needham, who wants to know if he would be interested in helping out with the team that he's putting together. Hal is going to double Travis's salary. And there was a note in the November 5th, 1980 issue of Grand National Scene that Travis was going to be getting $65,000 a year from Hal Needham to be the crew chief at this new race team for Stan Barrett and Harry Gant. $65,000 a year in 1980 was a considerable sum. I was still working at the Roanoke Times, and let's put it this way. Travis is going to make three times as much money as I was making. That's a good chunk of change now. But back then, you're talking about uptown money. (laughs) (laughs) And, of course, you have to listen to an offer like that. But Travis tells Johnny Hayes, who was the sponsor rep for U.S. Tobacco and Skoll, I'm not giving you an answer until I talk to Junior. And you have to respect that because Junior was his employer. They hadn't butted heads that we know of. They got along. They had had all kinds of success together, and he wanted to talk to Junior. Now, I don't think that he was wanting to put screws to Junior and ask for more money necessarily, but he, out of respect, wanted to go to Junior and say, I've got this offer. What do you think? Yeah, Travis did it the way it should be done. Going back to your original team owner with whom you've had no problems is an act of respect, as you mentioned, and that's the way it should be done. Junior Johnson being Junior Johnson, however, (laughs) he sees an angle that he can work to his advantage. So he tells Travis, you have my blessing. And by the way, who's going to be building your engines over there? (laughs) (laughs) So Junior Johnson wound up providing engines to this new race team. And I didn't know this, but according to Travis, Hal's team basically operated as a satellite operation. I think the advantage in that situation, of course, went to Junior. I mean, he did lose the top flight crew chief, but he gained another business, which meant more income and more income meant Hey, I've got more money to spend on my race team. How about that? Yes, sir. That's a pretty cagey move, I think. Do you think he did maybe R&D with Travis's motors? Well, I think that was part of the deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. The plot thickens. When Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds first came into the garage, what did people think 
about these Hollywood characters getting into the sport? Well, they didn't know what to think. At first, no one knew if they were really serious about operating a team. Was this just a Hollywood lark, like going deep sea fishing or something like that? But after a period of time, everybody recognized the team to be a good team and didn't think much about the owners being from Hollywood at all. What I think is so interesting is the fact that the more things change in this sport, the more they stay the same because you had Hal Needham and Burt Reynolds getting into the sport in late 1980, early 1981. And today you have Pitbull and you have Michael Jordan getting into the sport. So I think it's just interesting how things always tend to stay the same in this sport. You are exactly right. David Letterman over at IndyCar, correct? Yes, sir. All that being said, just wait until you hear what Travis had to say about his years with Hal and Burt in next week's episode. Hello, Scene Vault fans. This is Brian from Speedway Screens. And if you're enough of a NASCAR historian to be listening to this podcast, there's a good chance a piece of the past you've been on the hunt for is in my shop. I'm constantly on the hunt for apparel and collectibles from all genres and eras of motorsports. So whether it be cup cars, dirt modifieds, dragsters, or monster trucks, I've probably got something for you. Check out my inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com and be sure to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens for the newest items as soon as they drop and for a peek at what I keep for my own collection. As a special thank you to listeners of this show, just enter scene at checkout for 10% off. Speedwaytsj.etsy.com. That's speedwaytsj.etsy.com. The November 5th, 1981 issue of Grand National Scene. Steve, this is something that I noticed. Travis Carter had been working in the sport since the early 1970s. And Scene started in 1977 while he was still with Roger Penske and and at the time driver Dave Marcus. 1978, he's the co-crew chief for Junior Johnson and Kel Yarbrough when that team won its third straight championship. And he stayed in that role through 1980. But other than a handful of quotes here and there in race leads, Travis didn't seem to get a lot of press. He was featured in a couple of in-focus shots at the back of the paper those first few years of scene's existence. But he didn't have a full feature or column written about him until you did your column on him in this issue. And what that tells me is that Travis wasn't one who went out and sought the spotlight. Travis kept a very low profile. That's one of the reasons I wanted to do a column on him, to find out who this guy was. He was just not the type of guy, as you said, that went out and sought the spotlight. Not at all. This is how you started out your column. Travis Carter looked in place. He was sprawled out on a couch in his office in Denver, North Carolina. With his naturally sleepy eyes and drawling speech, the Skull Bandit Racing Team crew chief was comfortable. You would swear that at any moment, he would drift off to sleep. (laughs) Okay. You then quoted Travis as saying, man, this is how old Junior Johnson does it. He stretches out and does his talking. But with me, I hope you got a notebook. You won't be able to remember what I say, 
I talk in circles. You'll have to decipher everything. And once you had set the stage for how relaxed Travis appeared that day, you then went into how laid back he was with his race team. Travis said, things aren't that regimental around our shop. I'm pretty flexible with the schedule. If a guy shows up an hour late, he doesn't have to explain things to me. If he leaves early, it's the same thing. As long as the work gets done satisfactorily, then all these guys have to do is use judgment. Steve, that sounded like a pretty relaxed place to work at the time. That's the kind of guy that Travis was, is just so laid back and very uh, unregimental. I think that he preferred that his crew be comfortable at their work because he thought that would allow them to do better work by not being so regimental, not having some guy come over and look over your shoulder and say, what time are you leaving? You can't go this and you can't do that. In other words, let them be comfortable and do their work. And that seemed to work very well for that team. Wasn't it a couple of weeks ago where we talked about Larry McReynolds showing up to the racetrack before daybreak and Raymond Fox holding the flashlight so they could see it's two different ways of doing things. And obviously both were very successful in doing it. So who's to say which one's right now, that being said, the crew members, according to your column on that team had given Travis a nickname, Vince. Mm -hmm. Now, do you remember who Vince Carter was? I am. I sure do. (laughs) Sergeant Vince Carter, Roman Pyle, USMC. I can't hear you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Vince Carter was the sergeant on the TV show, Gomer Pyle, USMC, but the team had given him that nickname. Now, I think it was probably the way you call a fat guy slim or whatever. Travis Carter was no Vince Carter. That's for sure. If Vince Carter represented the kind of boss you wouldn't want to have always on your case. Well, that was not Travis. As for the race coverage in this issue, Gerald Waltrip won at Rockingham after a pretty heated battle with Bobby Allison, Harry Gant, and Richard Petty in the closing stages of the race. Daryl finished about a half car length ahead of Bobby with Harry trailing by another three or four car lengths while Richard who faded a little bit at the end, he was maybe a hundred yards behind the final caution of the day came out on lap 452 for DK Ulrich's blown engine. And once the green flag came back out, Daryl and Bobby swapped the lead four different times. Daryl said of that battle with Bobby. No, we never got together out there. Bobby races me hard and I race him hard, but for us to do something out there, well, it would be the worst thing that could happen. They'd crucify us. (laughs) (laughs) The racing service, as I mentioned in the intro had been sealed with bear grease and it was treacherous. The race lasted four hours, 39 minutes and 32 seconds. And it was slowed by 12 cautions for a total of 96 laps. That was a long day at Rockingham, but that was not unusual at that one mile track. It was always (laughs) a long day at the racetrack at Rockingham. Only 19 of the 37 starters were still running at the end of the race. And during his press box interview, after winning the race, Daryl talked about trying to make his way around the racetrack. He pointed down to the racetrack and said, 
you can see where the tire tracks are from here. It's like a road with three or four inches of slush with two nice tire tracks. You stay in them and you'll be okay. It was terribly slick. There was no sunshine to burn off the wet and it was like driving on mud all day. The bare grease was an issue that entire week, even during practice. Daryl said before the race, they're looking for a thrill of a minute here. Bear grease wrecks cars and promoters know that sells tickets. It's like if the line didn't bite the tamer once in a while, it wouldn't be exciting. Now you read that quote and you get the impression that Daryl is saying that they put this bear grease on the racetrack intentionally in order to create havoc. Now, let me tell you a story about that bear grease. Like I promised you earlier. What they would do was lay that sealant down at least once a year. And then they would call up a driver and say, why don't you come on over here and help us test your car on this bear grease and see how it's going to do. And the driver would say, okay. And then after the driver took to that track for just a few laps, he would make this kind of quote to the PR man to put in a press release. This bear grease is just going to be terrible. We're going to have the hardest time in the world racing on this track. Cars are going to go everywhere. It's going to be absolutely treacherous. And that would go out in the press release. And the driver would go home with $500 in his pocket. That happened more than once at Rockingham. So when Daryl says it was delivered, you got to believe he's on to something. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Since we are an objective podcast and we try to give both sides of the story, <laughs> Frank Wilson, who was the vice president of the track at the time, he took exception to that kind of criticism. He said, we would never do anything to endanger the drivers or cause them to damage their equipment. Sealing the track is simply something we have to do if we want to stay in business. We can apply a sealer on the entire racetrack for about $20,000. The lowest bid we received when we considered repaving was $450,000, and that was four years ago. Well, when it comes to the money, I imagine those figures were accurate. But uh, Frank is a good old boy. I knew him well. But Frank was also a shrewd promoter, and he didn't mind putting down that bear grease and sending out a press release saying, wow, this is going to be a very treacherous track because that could sell tickets. And it did. So I don't know how often they did that situation, but I know <laughs> they did. The win was Daryl's 12th overall that year. And although it was also the 12th consecutive race in which Daryl had finished ahead of Bobby Allison, still only 68 points separated them at the end of the day with two more races remaining on the schedule. So that championship with two very races remaining yeah. was still very much up for grabs. Daryl did wind up with the championship in 1981, but it was a lot closer than a 12 win season might have indicated. The win was also Daryl's fourth in a row. Bobby Allison and Richard Petty both won five races in a row in 1971. Bobby's streak was broken by Richard and Richard's streak was broken by Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> I love the way that the pieces of the puzzle tend to fall in place. Richard's five race win streak was broken by Bobby. And that was the race at Bowman gray 
that remains so controversial to this day because Bobby doesn't officially receive credit because he was driving a grand American Ford Mustang in the event. And that decision by NASCAR to this day does not sit well with every race fan. And I think I'm looking at one of them right now. (laughs) Hey, listen, it's, it's fine with me. The fact is Bobby Allison has 85 wins. There's no question about no ifs, ands, or buts. It's official everywhere except for the record book. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. And Daryl came this close to joining Bobby and Richard with five wins in a row when he finished just a car length behind Neil Bonnet in the next race in Atlanta. That team, Junior Johnson and Associates and Daryl Waltrip, that was their first year together. They were good. Yes. Everything Junior hoped for when he helped Daryl get out of his contract with Dygard came true for him. And that's exactly what he wanted. Tim Flock is a NASCAR pioneer. He won the championship in 1952, 1955. And you had a news story in this issue that he was going to be heading up a new Winston Cup team. A man by the name of Jerry Cottle was supposedly a wealthy businessman in Goldsboro, North Carolina, who owned apartment complexes and loan companies in the area. Tim was at Darlington a few weeks before this, and he was selling tickets to the upcoming Charlotte race out of his car when this guy came up and introduced himself. And Tim said in your story, he said he used to watch me race. One thing led to another, and he finally told me he had a lot of money and wanted to go racing. And your story continued and said that Cottle was quote unquote worth millions and that he had incorporated the Tim Flock International Racing Corporation. And plans called for them to have a top scale racing team with as many as three competitive cars in each event. Tim said, we're going to have to get a lot of good quality mechanics and parts, and we will be looking for a driver who will be staying with us. You know how much that is going to cost, but Cottle seems more than ready to pay for it. I know that all this sounds a bit crazy, but so far, everything that has been promised has been done. I'm going to keep everything legal and honest. And I guess the only other thing to say is I'm going racing that I'm aware of, Steve, this team never took to the racetrack and over the years. You and I both know of a million different teams and grand plans that have fallen by the wayside. We've heard this story over and over and over again. Oh, Rick, you're so right about that. There have been uncountable numbers of race teams that are never formed and never really take to the track. One reason being, I think, that the people trying to put this type of team together don't realize the cost of operation. They don't have a major sponsor. They're working out on their own to spend the money to pay for it. And that money runs out or they realize it's just too much. They've got to shut down before they ever get started. And how many of these teams have we seen over the years that come out with no sponsorship, run a couple of races and then finally say, no, we can't, we can't keep this up. I believe it's financial. That makes the difference. Well, I think one or two things happens. Number one, exactly what you said happens. Even though the person is legitimate and has, in fact, a lot of money, they get into it and they find out the cost. And then you have other cases where it's basically just a con game and 
situation turns out like Angela Motorsports and <laughs> the less said about that deal, the better. But the old saying goes, and you've heard it a million times, so have I, and so have the listeners, but the best way to make a small fortune in NASCAR is to start out with a big one. <laughs> yeah. As Felix about us told us, you want to make a million dollars in racing? Start with two million. I don't know Jerry Connell. So I, I don't know if this was a legitimate deal or, or what, but the thing that I do hate is that a person like Tim flock was in the middle of it and maybe got his hopes up about getting back into the sport as a competitor, as a team owner, as a figurehead or whatever. And it doesn't happen for him. And that, and the, uh, maybe promises made to certain, uh, crew chiefs and or drivers, they're going to compete with this team and they don't get a chance to race and do their job. They're just shuffled to the side. By the time this issue came out, it had already been announced that Bobby Allison was leaving Rainier Racing at the end of the season. To hear Bobby Allison tell it all the way back in the 15th episode of our show, the seeds were sown for that split during the 1981 Daytona 500, which was just the second race that Bobby had driven for that team. And he had won the first at Riverside. And there had been a lot of controversy about the team running a Pontiac Le Mans in the 1981 Daytona 500. And then came the race itself. Sunday, the car was just incredibly good. And the crew chief said, well, we can't lead the race, you know, uh, because if we do, they're going to outlaw our car. They're going to outlaw us anyway. No, he says, I'm running this thing. You do do what I say. So he says, you got to stay back in the pack until, until the end. So I stayed back in the pack until really late in the race and uh, just had a couple of wheel marks on the side of the car where guys were trying to race with me and, and draft and all that stuff. And So I said to the crew chief, we need to go ahead and be leading because we're going to end up getting this thing torn up. He said, well, go ahead and do what you want to do. So I eased on out front and was sitting there just smiling <laughs> and ran out of gas. Ran out of gas. And I was supposed to have pitted uh, with 21 laps to go, and it ran out of gas with 19 laps to go. The crew chief decided not to call me in. Wow. How frustrating was that after after having such a good car? Well, it was really bad, and it was it was even worse because it put me at odds with the crew chief and with you know, you know, with the race team, and you know, I wanted to go race, and I wanted to go fast, and I wanted to win, but I didn't want to have to to be in a a constant arguing situation wow. with the you know, and, and uh, the the crew chief blamed the running out of gas on my lousy chassis setup, used up all <laughs> his gas. Yeah. So, you know, um, it really. Uh, it deteriorated our effort right from the very beginning. You know, we had a, a year where we won some races, but but we never, never had good communication and never had a happy race team effort. And at the end of the year, I left. And then Waddell talked about the split in episode fifty-four. I know that Bobby was particularly disappointed about that race as well. And I think that he's mentioned that it kind of maybe hurt your relationship. Do you remember anything about that or? No, I don't, I don't remember any bad 
of anything over that yeah. part. You know, yeah. it's just one of them things, you know, that, you know, I've always wondered back, what did we do wrong? Did we dis- we not figure the fuel mileage correctly? Did we not get the gas in it that we thought we did? You know, there's so many ifs. And then the next thing, he was leading the race all the time, so that's going to run more, burn more fuel when you're out front breaking right. the air. Yeah. So I don't know. Anyway, it wasn't meant for us to win. We didn't. Steve, you had a news feature in this issue about their parting of the ways. Bobby leaving Rainier Racing and Waddell Wilson. Waddell said in this story, I'm not sure how the breakup came about. Sometimes you put your head down, working hard and trying to win, and you don't see things you should. But I've heard it said that Bobby and I were arguing and feuding, that we couldn't get along. So help me, we never had the first crossword. People actually think we were at each other's throats, but that is not the way it has been. Now, although Bobby didn't specifically mention the controversy with the Lamonts, he still sounded pretty upset in your story. Bobby said, I feel this team has put forth more effort than any other team here. It did the work under unfair circumstances and under a state of confusion. It's like a guy working hard to dig a ditch to lay a water pipe to his house. He runs into rock, but he cuts through it and keeps going. He gets halfway to his house and all of a sudden the water company comes along and says, you can't dig that ditch unless you do it on the other side of the yard. There's no way that guy can dig another ditch with the same enthusiasm. Now, if you read that quote today, out of context, you would think that that team was in complete disarray and that the season had just fallen apart. Bobby won five races with Rainier Racing in 1981, including the season opener and the season finale, both of which came at Riverside. The last five races of the year, his worst finish was a fourth. (laughs) And he either won or finished second in the other four. Now, to top it off, he finished second to Daryl by just 53 points for the Winston Cup Championship. My question is this. Despite what happened in the Daytona 500 with the Le Mans and then him running out of gas, what might have happened if Bobby had stayed with Rainier Racing? I think they would have done very well. Like you said, Bobby won five races that year. But when he talks about something being unfair, he's talking about the way NASCAR legislated against that Grand Le Mans starting at Daytona. And they kept altering the, the rules to alter the Le Mans. And Bobby was just not happy with that at all. And neither was Harry Rainier. But I thought they overcame it nicely to the point where Bobby was winning races. I don't think Bobby ever forgot what NASCAR did. And despite his victories, I think he just did not want to be involved with the team any longer because he thought that team might be a target. So Bobby is out of the 28 car, which left team owner Harry Rainier looking for another driver for the next season. And there was a separate news report in this issue that Richard Petty had talked to Harry about joining his operation in 1982. So there's food for thought. Well, it led to the thought that what's going on at Petty Enterprises, that Richard would want to leave the team. And you know as well as I do what happened just a couple years later. It was gone to Mike Kerr for two full seasons. It was also reported in this story that if Richard didn't take the ride, another candidate was Mark Martin, 
And Mark has talked about turning that deal down in his podcast. So Benny Parsons started the 1982 season with Rainier Racing, but was released in favor of Buddy Baker midway through the year. So Richard Petty in the 28 car, Mark Martin in the 28 car. I love to read stuff like this just for the what if factor. Hi, I'm Lake Speed. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. So, I graduated from DuPont Senior High School in Hermitage, Tennessee, 36 years ago yesterday. 36 years, Steve. I ain't nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. To make myself feel a little bit better, what year did you graduate high school? 1966. <laughs> okay, I'll quit griping about 1985. <laughs> <laughs> you young whippersnapper. <laughs> little known fact, I got out of taking my final exams in high school by having my appendix taken out just the week before I was supposed to graduate. Unlike our buddy, Eric Quinn, Thankfully, my appendix didn't burst, but man, I was still in a world of hurt. Well, the way Eric Quinn did it, <laughs> you got to admire the man for putting up for that kind of pain for so long. There was actually an issue of Grand National Scene dated June 6th, 1985, which was the day that I graduated. Can you tell me who was on the cover? June 6th, 1985. Mm, no, I can't, unless it's Bud Moore. Terry Labonte had won the race at Riverside. So there okay. was a shot of the on-track action with an inset photo in victory lane of Terry and a sponsor official in Dell Inman. So that's who was on the cover that date. Cool. <laughs> I'm Travis Carter, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Perfect. Not perfect the first time. You kind of talked over it. Oh, I did. It'd be perfect. I got, I got so excited that somebody did it right the first. Come on, Wade. <laughs> Wade off the set. Wade off the set. <laughs>